You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. by Advent, know that uh, it's simply the story of God at work for us, at work in the reconciliation of his people. And yet, what an incredibly strange way for God to save the world, right? Advent is about God's own story of cosmic redemption, redemption of the world, the world that he alone created and the birth of the God who dwelt among us. He comes entrusted to the care of a teen girl named Mary who in her youthful, her youthfulness, she fully embraces the reality that she would carry the one who would come for her own redemption. And without question though, the story of Advent is about the gospel. The gospel is the story of our sovereign creator's loving kindness shown to us. The story of his redemptive work for us that began even before the world was created as he set to love us. And the promise of a Messiah fulfilling what was foretold by the prophets. In Genesis 3, we see uh, Adam and Eve fall into sin in the garden and God's own promise then of one who would come to crush the head of the serpent. He would come though through the seed of the woman. And here in Isaiah's prophecy uh, is this promise of the coming king, a king who is victorious even through suffering. Jesus is this king, the one who has come and is yet to come again. In Jesus, the messianic hopes of God's people find fulfillment as the one who was born to die, defeating the evil one by rising from the grave victoriously and securing justification and satisfying the wrath of God. You know, just a few months back, my family was was driving down from New Jersey where uh, my wife Shadia grew up and when we got to Virginia, we, we decided to take 64 down through Stanton, Virginia, where Shadia uh, did her undergrad work at Mary Baldwin University. It, it's, of course, right in the middle of the Shenandoah Valley. And as we drove through these mountains on either side, they were covered with these big, beautiful trees. We've come to know much about the importance of of trees to our ecological system, providing needed elements for our world. It's in these realities, though, uh, that make the existence of God, for me especially, even that much more profound. 
Our God is a thoughtful creator and artisan and architect who wonderfully connects life itself with the world in which we live. From the fish of the sea to the birds of the air, the flowers and the bees who pollinate them. From summer showers that cool us from the heat of the day to the thunderstorms that light the skies at night to the cold of winter and watching our kids playing in the snow are all reminders of our God's thoughtful design of a world created for his glory and our good. We should also then openly acknowledge the reality that, that sin itself impacts our world. Each year we see catastrophic weather conditions take the lives of thousands and leaving many others in desperate need. It's no wonder then that tonight's passage of scripture uses nature itself to reveal much of the coming king. And he begins with a tree. Trees, for the most part, are just ordinary. They, they lack any real distinction between them. And I'm sure this is exactly the kind of detail that Isaiah intends for us to see. We are a people in constant search of the extraordinary. We want to, to be well-liked and admired and respected by others. And our goal is often perfection and not the slow stillness and contemplation that our lives of faith often demands from us. It's no wonder then that there's growing conversations around things like our children's use of social media when even I can't understand how families who are always vacationing in the most exotic places and kids' faces shine with joy only to know that their realities are far from the imagery that they display. I honestly by no means am immune from this kind of ideology. I, I can't tell you how many years uh, I spent just wanting to be the next big thing in ministry. I showed the world that to be black and reform was a thing and my books were top bestseller lists. I'd live in an empire I created for myself and Jesus simply the tool I'd use to get there. I didn't, I didn't want to be a tree. Isaiah in this first verse says that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Isaiah's prophecy here uh, doesn't even begin with the whole tree. He, of course, is speaking to uh, the way in which God himself will bring restoration to his people and the destruction of their enemies. And that comes with the promise of both grace and peace. And it begins with the stump of Jesse. Jesse is uh, uh, the father of David, who is considered the great king of Israel. Uh, and in the gospels, Jesus is often referred to as the son of David. David only reveals to us the need for a king who is true and righteous, who will rule rightly. And the stump of Jesse is to be in the lineage from David to Abraham, the father of God's chosen people. 
In 1 Samuel, the prophet calls Jesse to, to bring his sons that one might be anointed king and he brings the oldest of them leaving David to the care of the sheep in the field. And after each of David's older brothers are rejected, it's this lowly David who is made the king and his reign only creates a longing in us for the king to come whose rule will never end. Matthew's gospel begins with the phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This statement seeks to present Jesus from the very beginning as the one who fulfills all of the Old Testament promises. He then alone brings salvation to the people of God. And this tree, though, it, though it, it directly embodies Israel as the chosen people of God, uh, it also is a helpful reminder of humanity's need for redemption. The text says, though, that what comes from the stump of Jesse is a branch that from its roots bears fruit. A tree stump is a tree that's been completely decimated. Uh, it's been cut down to its lowest point. It's what was once living and healthy now having been completely ravished and is now dead. So fam, let me, let me just remind you tonight that we serve a God who makes all things new. A God who even in dead things brings about new life. In John 15, Jesus himself uses uh, this same kind of imagery to teach us about our need for connectedness to him, saying that I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser, that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches and whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In verse 2, Isaiah says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This second verse is unique because it speaks to the needed fulfillment of the Messiah to come, but it does this from this viewpoint of past experience. Uh, the book of Judges is this ongoing cycle of God's people falling into sin and they are led by gifted dudes like Samson who despite uh, God's favor are deeply flawed. And they leave God's people with this desire for one who would come to lead them with the kind of wisdom that could only come from God himself. And at the time that Isaiah writes this, he knew this reality well. He knew a world much like our own that desperately needed a righteous leader who would lead with wisdom. And I know we'd like to think of the political turmoil that we see on the news every day as our unique experience, but I'm sure Isaiah would beg to differ. 
In verses 3 and 4, Isaiah says, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what he's, but his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity. For the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. To delight is to find gratification or pleasure. And Isaiah says that the Messiah's pleasure will be in the fear of the Lord. And I know this is not language that we use much today. So I want to be sure that we know that the fear is not tormenting or malicious, but a fear that is about reverence and admonition and respect. And unlike you and I, who can only judge from experience or what we perceive to be true, we only fail in comparison to the Messiah's judgment as the one who, without regard to outside experiences or external guises of men. The poor in these verses are not a reflection of, of people's financial state, but rather the poor in spirit. And Jesus comes acknowledging the sinful state of humanity. The meek, though, are those who live only with an, an awareness of sin, but also the awareness of the righteousness of Christ. And the text says that he will decide with equity. The word equity appears only about 10 times in all of Scripture. And I know that there is a great deal of debate, especially in Christian circles, around if equity itself is a value of our Christian faith. Equality is best understood as applying the same resources to all people and doing this without regard to what people actually need or the opportunities that they are presented. Equity, on the, on the other hand, is about finding ways to recognize that people have unique experiences. Experiences that shape them, impacting not only what they need, but also the opportunities that are afforded to them. Today, many deny the need for the equitable treatment of people for the sake of equality, only allowing these disparities to further exist. I come to a text like this and I have to wonder how a Messiah who recognizes the equitable treatment of his people could find his people do not recognize the need for the equitable treatment of their brothers and sisters in him. Verse 5 says, though, that righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is simply to say that he will wear righteousness and faithfulness around his waist like a belt. Verses 6 through 9 says that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like a ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. 
they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. These verses are a reflection of the world shaped by the coming king. A world that many would consider an upside down reality rooted in the grace and peace that only he can give us. Now I'm sure many of you like me have noticed most remarkably about this text is the incredible sense of unity that these passages bring especially in light of the way that Isaiah speaks of children here, the little child who leads the wolf and the lamb, the leopard and the goat, the lion and the calf, the child who plays over the hole where the cobra lives and the child who sticks his hand in the adder's den. I know these seem like terrifying ideas for us, but under the coming king, nature itself experiences transformation. This should not surprise us, though. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, 19 through 22, he tells us that for creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only then does nature's relationship with itself change, but the presence of children among them reminds us that even nature's relationship with humanity will also change. This only leads us to the glorious reality that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this means that it will be absolutely undeniable that our King has come. Each week, whenever we come to this table, we come acknowledging that we are waiting on the arrival of the coming King. But this table is also then a reminder that our king has come and giving himself, giving himself to atone for our sins that you and I might be the very righteousness of God. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said that this Remember, we love these rascals.